Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's June the 21st, 2022. It's already been quite a what I might call an exponential day. We've done lots of interviews already. Did one with uh, uh, earlier this morning, uh, San Francisco time, with Azim Azar, the London-based author of The Exponential Age, um, in which we talked about his new book, The Exponential Age, how accelerating technology is transforming business, politics, and society. But as I suggested to him, uh, accelerating technology might also be corrupting business, politics, and society. The headlines this morning are full of all sorts of very problematic headlines about the collapse of the uh, crypto economy. One in particular, Terraform Labs, a Korean-based company uh, which uh, lost $40 billion. Um, South Korean prosecutors are so, serious, so curious, to use a word, about Terraform that uh, Terraform people are not allowed to leave the country. Certainly in our age of exponential tech and huge amounts of money being made on uh, uh, the startup front, uh, it lends itself to a degree of corruption, of scams. Uh, my guest today, uh, Dan McCrum, is the author of a brand new book out about a, finan a tech financial scam, Money Man, a hot not money man, money men, a hot startup, a billion dollar fraud, a fight for the truth. It's a book about Wirecard. And there was an excellent um, accompanying piece uh, late last week uh, over the weekend in the Financial Times. Dan also works for the Financial Times newspaper. Why we trust fraudsters. Dan is joining us. Dan, where are you in London? I am actually in St. Albans, just outside London. Ah, and uh, thanks for having me on, Andrew. Um, you probably don't want to give your complete exact location just in case the wildcard people, Dan, um, hunt you Absolutely. down. In all seriousness, you're quite brave in terms of how you've taken on Wirecard. What broad lessons did you learn from or should we learn from uh, from your investigation of Wirecard in Money Men that we can use for other fraudulent companies in today's hot tech sector? Well, it's kind of the age-old tale, isn't it? You know, greed makes us blind to the problems that we should otherwise see. And I should probably explain what Wirecard is, because it's that strange thing where it was this huge fraud, but certainly in America, it wasn't a household name, because it operated behind the scenes. Yeah, and if you go to the Wirecard, Wirecard website now, there's nothing there except acknowledgement that it's no longer in business and solvency proceedings, so you... Uh, it's it's done. It's gone, right? Oh, it's completely gone. It's uh, I mean the way the best way to think about this is maybe Theranos on steroids. It did a slightly different thing. It it was kind of like a European PayPal. It helped move money around, but it was the next big thing technology-wise. It was one of Europe's biggest tech companies. It was worth about thirty billion dollars at its peak, and it turned out to be a complete fraud. And the book is really about the event. Yeah, I mean, it's sort you, of. You, you, it's, you seem surprised, even though you're the guy who uncovered it, Dad. 
<laughs> well, it took quite a long time. I mean, the investigation was six years. Right. You and... mentioned um, you, you mentioned Elizabeth Holmes and Th- well, you me- mentioned Theranos. It brings to mind, of course, Elizabeth Holmes has become this. I don't know whether she's a folk hero or a folk villain in in American tech circles. What Theranos did was cook the books. I mean, they invented a product which uh, was fraudulent. It, it looked as if it worked. It didn't. Did did Wirecard do the same thing? There are a lot of parallels. They they had a real business, but it was just losing money hand over fist. And so what they did is they sort of just created this pretend business. They had a few friends who they said, <laughs> yeah, we are making so much money with these guys. You will not believe it. And, but they, there were a lot of similarities, like the chief executive, he dressed up in a black turtleneck as well. Yeah, uh, well here we have Brown. a picture of him, not in his black turtleneck. Sadly not in turtleneck. Marcus no. Brown in uh, 2019. And like a lot of these characters, you know, he promises the moon. Wirecard was going to usher in the cashless society. It was going to grow fabulously. It had all these incredible, amazing technology, you know, you throw around buzzwords like artificial intelligence. They were doing that as well. And really inside, there was nothing. It was, um, you know, you can go a very long way if you don't have to make any real money. And, um, but the, the kind of thing is, I started to look into it and said, hey, this is too good to be true eight years ago and you know a lot of things were raised and there were these two big theories you know is it faking its profits is it involved in money laundering and doing lots of sort of criminal activities like that and the strange thing was the more i dug the more investors just didn't listen so they you know they found reasons to explain it away they would you know they would say oh, well why would these people do this you know they're this guy, Marcus Brown, was the biggest shareholder. He became a billionaire. Why would he risk all of that? And, you know, they've got great audit firms. Ernst & Young, one of the big four accounting firms. Well, they're there. They're signing off and everything. And so it was sort of this very strange pattern of trying to say to people, I think there's something really serious happening here. And them ignoring it. But what Wirecard did very effectively, and this is sort of part of the whole strange thing of the book, is they turned me into the bad guy. So as a journalist, you're not supposed to become part of the story. But as I dug deeper, I start realizing there are hackers trying to break into our email. And then there's private detectives following us around and our sources. And then they cook up this whole scheme with sort of a nightclub owner and a a fake shake and uh, frame me for market manipulation, for leaking our stories to speculators before we wrote them. And, um, and what that did is they sort of convinced their investors and, in fact, regulators and some of the European authorities that I was the one who was corrupt. And that's a fascinating thing, isn't it? It's sort of that ability to give people what they want to hear and something that they can believe in. And then they'll kind of believe anything. It's very chilling. Um, uh, it's very chilling, Dan, on many levels, particularly because you're an FT guy. And I'm a regular viewers of the show. No, I'm a big admirer of the FT. I've had lots of their journalists on. I mean, no newspaper's perfect, but I think it's pretty honest and pretty hard hitting. Your FT editors presumably trusted you and kept on running the stories. Had you been a blogger, had you not had access to a 
a mainstream media product like FT, it might have been harder, do you think? I think it was only because we had the resources that we could keep on going. You know, the financial Did you get dragged was... in? I mean, I, over the weekend, I watched um, uh, I watched All the President's Men again, slightly different story, but once again, a, a movie about intrepid newspaper journalists pursuing a scandal. And it was clear that the only reason the, all the, uh, the, the Nixon was exposed was because of the bravery of Brent Bradley, who was the editor of The Post and was willing to take a huge risk. I assume that your editors at, at the FT were willing to take a risk. There must have been moments where you got dragged in and you were questioned about this whole wire card thing, were there? I mean, there were some pretty bad moments. I mean, it all went quite badly wrong in the middle, actually. I mean, I didn't get fired, but I did get demoted. I mean, because I kind of put my life in the book there because, uh, you know, you know, it's, it kind of turned it upside down. Why'd they so demote you? This was at the FT. Well, so it was, you know, I was busy trying to, you know, we had two very small children. Um, we were trying to build this house that I'm in at the moment. And I was sort of supposed to be doing a different job. I was supposed to be running a team of markets reporters, you know, finding exciting stories about corporate takeovers and debt raisings and things like that. And Wirecard was sort of a hobby, this fascination that I had with this company when nothing made sense. And for various reasons, I get into the book where it all goes a bit crazy and, you know, nightclub owners start intervening and um, this guy gets menaced by some Eastern European thugs. Um, why well, kind of sort of getting away with it? And it turns and we never, we don't end up with anything that we can print. So one of the joys of writing the book is now telling everything that was going on behind the scenes. But at the time I was like, I'm in the middle of a story and there's nothing tangible I can write. And it was kind of, I was moonlighting when I was supposed to be doing this other job at the FT and not doing very well. And there's this sort of moment where I'm called into the editor's office. And he's like, what front page stories have you found recently? And I'm kind of like, well, it's not actually a very long list, is it? Now we look at it. And so that was all going quite badly, but um, it sort of, that turned out to be the, you know, like the turning point where I went and did something else and we were like, okay, well, maybe Dan should be doing these corporate investigations that he cares about so much instead. And then we came back and we sort of looked at Wirecard again with the help of um, a whistleblower, which is, you know, so often the key to uncovering these things. You need someone on the inside who is going to stand up and say, you know what, everything that's going on here isn't right. I mean, it brings to mind, of course, the Bernie Madoff scandal. How did they keep things going for so long at Wirecard if it was a, a financial scam? Was it just a, a Ponzi scheme? In a sense, yes, they just kept taking in money from banks and investors and basically stealing it. You know, they have to spend some of it, you know, keeping the whole business going and making it look like it. But you know, the key to it all is this guy, um, if I move slightly, you can see him behind my shoulder there. So yeah, I'm not very good at working in reverse, but the yeah. uh, that there is Jan Marsalek, who was the second in command. And he turns out to be a bit of a Bond villain. Is this, so, uh, this, this, is this, uh, this is not, yeah, this is Jan Marsalek, who well, we have a, a poster, a wanted poster uh, in Cologne from 2020. So we We've got a, a fuller. Here he's not bearded. In your uh, photo, he's got a beard, right? 
Yeah, and that, that's when he was going through um, a period where he grew this big beard and all his friends referred to him as the Chechen. Because, um, so on, by day, he was, you know, a senior executive at this big financial institution and technology company. And everyone he met thought he was incredibly charming. And, you know, he was the one who solved everything. And inside the company, he was known as their chaotic genius. He was the one who had put together this amazing business that was making all the money. And I sort of spent the last year or so trying to get inside his head. And it turns out he didn't really know what he was doing. He was sort of making it up as he was going along, just frantically coming up with schemes. But was he a straightforward criminal? Did he know that he was, was he actively or participating in a, in a fraud or was he just, Oh, absolutely. He knew exactly what he was doing. Um, I've, and did know, Marcus Brown too? I mean, were they all in on it? The well, so, so the thing about Jan is we now know that he, he sort of was collecting all these weird friends. So he was hanging out with Russian spies and, um, and Austrian spies. And, you know, for his holiday, he went strolling around Syria with um, some Russian mercenaries because that was an exciting thing to do. And he, and at the end, when Wirecard comes crashing down, he manages to just skip the country and gets on a plane to Belarus. And the sort of enduring enigma is, well, where is he now and who was he actually right, that's working the wanted with? Poster. So he's still in Belarus. He's, uh, he's in Moscow now, we think. It's interesting, Dan, your, your book comes with a wonderful blurb from Tom Burgess, the author of Kleptopia. Tom was on the show last year or a couple of years ago talking about the, the dirty money that floods uh, the world system. Uh, he has a best-selling book, Kleptopia, How Dirty Money is Conquering the World. Uh, and last week, I had Oliver Bullo on the show about how Britain enables tycoons, tax dodgers, kleptocrats and criminals, the, the wire card crowd, I guess, uh, how they, Britain has run its economy off that. His new book's called Butler to the World. Um, how bound up in this kleptocratic, dirty money global system was or is um, Wirecard. Uh, and it's particularly ironic since British, the British seem to specialize in two things. One, quite brave journalists like yourself and Tom Burgess, um, Catherine Belton, who took Putin on, Oliver Buller, people who were exposing the system. But on the other hand, a system that enables it and grows rich off it. So, I mean, what I say about the book is really, this is the experience of what happens when the dirty money comes after you. And what's striking... And that's Russian dirty money. It's not just... Well, I mean, any dirty money. But so Wirecards, Wirecards was sort of tied up in Russia... Uh, we don't know the full extent of the links, but it was using all the same tactics, which, you know, are available to Russian oligarchs, because what it was doing to push back was using a whole load of what we call enablers in London. So it was using very expensive law firms. It was using, you know, the likes of Jones Day, Schillings, Herbert Smith. Like and Putin, um, I mean, it's, sorry to keep on jumping yeah. in, Dan, it's so interesting, but... But in the same way, Putin used expensive law firms to go after Catherine Bell. Exactly. It's um, it's just like that sort of. Yeah. So they threatened to sue us in the same way that they um, sued Catherine and they sued Tom. And they, um, you know, the private detectives would run around and do their bidding. So 
you know, there are many similarities. And what it shows again is sort of just how open London is to saying, yeah, sure, we don't really care who's right or wrong here as long as the money is good. Is that getting cleaned up, though, with books like yours? Is it being addressed? I mean, I'd like to think we're helping to shine a light on it. And, you know, we owe a great favour to sort of Tom and Catherine for sort of standing up to the oligarchs in court. And I think also, you know, in a certain way for Putin, because, I mean, the, the, the war is a total disaster. And I think what that has finally done is sort of made people realise how London has been facilitating that and how the courts in particular have made reporting on these sorts of people and these sorts of dirty money flows so difficult. So I think there is a real prospect of reform at last. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk of sort of anti-slap legislation. And we also had another victory um, this week with uh, Carol Cadwaller, um, yeah. who, had, who had sued Aaron Bank, or sorry, had been sued by Aaron Banks. Um, she had said, you know, she had raised questions about the number of times he had met sort of the Russian ambassador, I think. Um, and he was a key architect of the Brexit campaign in the UK. And, um, and she won her case when he sued her on public interest ground. So that's another great, okay, it feels like maybe the tide is turning and we can write some more of these stories. One of the most surprising thing to me as an outsider here is the fact that Wirecard was a German company. Uh, I know the book just came out in German. I'm sure it was going to be a big hit there. I spent a lot of time in Germany. German culture is the most skeptical, I think, of these get-rich-quick schemes. My sense, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, my sense is German business is a little bit more ethical than certainly UK or American business. <laughs> um, and, but maybe I'm wrong, you can correct me. But the, of all the countries in Europe or the world for a wire card to emerge, a country which has always been skeptical of, of these miracle tech fixes, I would never have expected it in Germany. Am I simply wrong? Am I mistaken? So, so all the big developed economies have frauds and scandals. You know, Germany gave us Dieselgate and Volkswagen, which is literally a criminal company. Right, exactly. So, so let's not, but the thing is, it's not the image that you have of Germany, right, of this sort of mature, grown-up economy. And that was one of the surprising things, was encountering that we were like, why isn't Germany getting this? And I think part of the reason is because when you have a high-functioning economy, everyone does trust each other. And this is what you see, this is what the fraudsters are abusing. It's the fact that most of the time it would make no sense for us to act like big companies are trying to rip us off and are lying to our faces, you know, in a fraudulent way, at least. Because you would check everything and most of the time there would have been no point checking because everything's fine. So we just don't. But what Wirecard sort of abused is that institutional psychology where you assume that there are systems in place and that somebody has checked. And so this is, this is one of the reasons why, you know, Ernst & Young is so culpable here. And, you know, the impact of this fraud, I think has been a large contributor to this idea that 
Ernst and Young is now going to break itself up into two parts, sort of spin auditing out from. Explain a little bit more. Not everyone will be familiar with Ernst yeah. and Young. Are these? Is this a large accounting firm that essentially was in on the fraud, or simply lazy or corrupt and not willing to acknowledge it? Um, so it's one of the world's largest accounting firms, and you know it has to approve the accounts of hundreds of thousands of companies. It gets paid lots of money to do it, and when you see you know, the reputation of one of these audit firms like EY, you go, great, they're professional. Someone serious has looked at this, so everything should be fine. And it turned out in the case of Wirecard that they had just done a terrible, terrible job for a decade. And then for reasons which are hard to explain, but, you know, the psychology gets quite interesting. They continue to do so once, you know, the Financial Times have published these articles saying, you know, guys, it looks like there's a lot of fraud going on here. And I think that psychology inside, they had these guys, because they would got used to the company on the inside, they continue to say everything's fine, because surely we would have caught it by now. And outside Wirecard, what happens is, you know, the bankers and the analysts and the regulators look at the company and say, well, they've got Ernst & Young working for them. It's a very reputable firm. We'll trust them and we'll assume that someone has done the work. I mean, there's a really simple thing here, which is, you know, if your friend recommends a builder to you, you trust that builder because you trust your friend. And it's that same sort of psychology at work, you know, in large business decisions as well. It's funny you use the word trust, Dan. Um, the the profits, if that's the right word, P-R-O-P-H-E-T-S, of the cryptocurrency revolution have argued, and one of the founders, Ethereum, even said it, Gavin Wood, that um, the crypto economy will replace trust with facts. But the reverse seems to be true with crypto. I'm really struck when you say you are one of the only people to actually not believe this nonsense. I, it always occurred to me, for example, with some of the crypto stuff that was going on, Celsius, run by a man, a uh, Ukrainian called Alex Mashinsky, always, he's, he's notorious because he wore a, or he wears a t-shirt, banks are not your friends. His crypto lender, Celsius, offered 17 and a half or 18% interest. Um, and to me, and I had lots of conversations with this, it always was too good to be true. I always said, look, I don't exactly understand what they're doing. I don't understand crypto. Although I think when people say they don't understand crypto, that should be a warning flag too. But there's no way that that can ever work. And now, of course, uh, everyone has what Axios calls Celsius sweats. When you see what's happening in the uh, the crypto space uh, obviously the 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 example in Korea as well which we began with Do Kwan the CEO of Terra USD a trash talking crypto founder does it remind you of Wirecard does it have all the characteristics of a classic fraud it's what's so fascinating about these stories isn't it is our ability to look at it and go that's too good to be true isn't it know, Celsius pay you 17% for giving them their Bitcoin. But at the same time, that greed kicks in, that desire, like, oh, but maybe, maybe they can explain it. Maybe, maybe 
because it's new or the technology or whatever reason we get sucked in and you see this happen so many times and you know the crypto boom. The, name, the, 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 the biggest tragedy of all dan is it's always the retail investor is left carrying the bag certainly with celsius and with this crypto meltdown the vcs the founding ceos the the technologists they've all made huge fortunes and it's the naive stupid uh, retail investor kids i heard that 25% of korean students have invested in the crypto market was that true of wirecard who paid in the end the bill for wirecard who lost money so wirecard the the guy behind me and his accomplices stole at least a billion dollars probably substantially more than that this is our friend jan marsalek this is our friend jan marsalek in moscow and and there were all of these small german investors who really believed in wirecard because it made them rich and for a long time it had the share price kept going up and up and that's always the tragedy isn't it you get sucked into the dream and you see it you know i've written about a whole bunch of different frauds and every time i've done it you get angry letters and angry comments from people who really believe in it. Why are you trying to do down this company? What what's going on? What's your agenda? And you know, it's it's always very sad when that just happens again and they take the money of people who just want to believe or just, you know, desperate for something a little bit better and exploit that. And that's the insidious thing about them. And you know, crypto is going to do that on such an unbelievable scale. I think we're going to find, as all these businesses collapse, that the people behind them, just like Wirecard, will have taken out a billion here, a billion there, and left the rubble behind. Yeah, it's certainly, it's already true. And I mean, what do you make of, I mean, there are clear frauds like Wirecard, perhaps like Do, uh, like um, uh, Do Kwon's um, uh, uh, Terra USD, mm. but there are lots of, sort of companies in the gray zone between pure illegality, pure criminality and um, and, uh, and mainstream businesses. So when I think of crypto, I think of a company like Coinbase, which was a platform. And they turned a blind eye to people trading with Celsius and others. Was the same true with Wirecard? There are a lot of mainstream banks and other conventional economic institutions implicated. Oh, with Wirecard, so some of the big German banks lost hundreds of millions. And what was amazing is, you know, there's this point in the story where I write a story saying, hey, look, we've got evidence that fraud is happening inside Wirecard. And the next day, one of the German investment banks, Comets Bank, its analysts put out a research report looking at the news story and said it was fake news. And it was kind of astonishing. Yeah, well, it's they're hardly of, surprising. I mean, that's Trump-Putin tactics classic, right? Yeah, and it, it's sort of amazing how pervasive that Trump tactic had become that a reputable investment bank would start publishing that sort of lie. That, that's how far we've come that you can just sort of dismiss, you know, journalism, news gathering, what we thought was, you know, the well-respected newspaper the financial times 
Dan, as you've suggested, we're never going to completely get rid of this because people want to believe in the idea, for example, that banks aren't your friends and therefore you should invest in other operations that give you more money back when there's no reason why banks or Wirecard or anyone else should be your friends. But what can we do to protect the system from the kind of corruption that you exposed at Wirecard that seems to be being exposed now in crypto from the Elizabeth Holmes and the Enrons and the Bernie Madoffs of the world? So, I mean, I think we already said it. If something sounds too good to be true, then it probably is. <laughs> and, you know, people should be able to explain their business exactly. at a really fundamental that, level. Right, exactly. And so, I've had so, on crypto, uh, sorry to keep on jumping in here, but... Hmm. I've had so many conversations on crypto with people who say, well, you know, I'm not smart enough to understand it. If you're not smart enough to understand it, then it's probably a scam. Well, I think one of the one of the big companies which gets a lot of attention in crypto is Tether. So it says its coins are all backed by US dollars. So if you've got one Tether, there's one US dollar worth of assets somewhere in a bank. And the strange thing is, is they won't just give everybody a list of what these assets are that they're holding against it or have some accountants come along and audit all their financials and say, yes, everything is as it should be. So I'm not saying that there's necessarily a problem with Tether, but kind of on the lines of it seems quite important and that's the sort of information we right, I mean, it's like, like to know why you why yeah. is it so hard to uh, right, it's like, it so hard to see but it's the same as you uh, Terra USD, they guaranteed that they were linked to the currency so that they couldn't fail. So, what you're suggesting is anyone tells you it's impossible for our system, even if you don't understand it, to fail, then the chances are it will. I think what we see time and again is people ask for an explanation and they're told. It's the technology, like it's some sort of magic black box. And really, you should be able to explain that. You can't just wave your wand and say, oh, no, the magic black box explains everything. Are there other industries, do you think, that business and finance can learn from? I sometimes think of the airline industry. Again, it's not a perfect industry, but planes don't crash for the most part. Very rarely, more, more and more, it's more and more unusual for a plane to crash. Can, I mean, if, if, if we had, if the plane industry reflected crypto or, uh, or Wirecard, we'd all be dead. Well, there's a very good reason why planes don't crash very often. It's because airlines are regulated within an inch of their lives. It's one of those examples of things matter. So there are rules and regulations which are thoroughly enforced. So... It's kind of not rocket science, really. It's um... well, fortunately, it's not rocket science. So, I, I, is that really ultimately what we should be demanding? We being the media, that the governments regulate certainly the startup world as aggressively as they regulate the building of aircrafts. I think I don't think we need new rules a lot of the time. It's simply we need them enforced. So there's a great book by uh, Jesse Isinger called The Chicken Shit Club, which basically makes the case. Why was no one prosecuted for the great financial crisis, which, you know, blew up the entire global economy? And the point is, 
you need to prosecute white collar crime on a regular basis, not just when, you know, the really big fraud happens, but you need to practice it and get in the culture of doing it and see these guys in suits and ties potentially as the bad guys. So like the Marcus Browns a... and the, um, yes. and especially your friend, uh, Jan Marcelek now in, in Moscow. It's all great stuff. Congratulations, um, Dan, on the book. And, and it required a degree of bravery. Perhaps some people might even say stupidity for you. <laughs> but it's essential that, that it gets done. Uh, you mentioned um, Chicken Shit Club in, in addition to your book. What else should people be reading? What are you reading these days? Um, well, I was going to say thank you. It was very kind. Um, I didn't really have much choice about it. This was one of those stories that turned my life upside well, down. Well, you did but, have a um, choice. A lot of people would have just chosen to conveniently say, I'm too busy or I don't want to do this. Yeah, but, you know, I'm a journalist and it was like, what an incredible story. Yeah. <laughs> Every single time. Well, I hope but there, that was, FT there was one editor in now is, is, And I hope that FT editor who demoted you is, is blushing. Oh, no, we're, we're I won't ask for names, Dan, this, but I can yeah. guess who it was. D don't worry, it, he comes out very well in the end. He 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 helped to see it through. But the, the one, uh, actually, a novel I am reading at the moment, Under Money by Jay Newman, um, is, it's sort of, it's written by someone who worked in finance, and you can tell he knows so much about it, and it's so intriguing. But it's also this, um, you know, just great action story about spies and politics and dirty money. 